to season two of the Young Player Wellbeing Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Brad Fullerton, alongside fellow co-host, Tony Capasso. Both Tony and I are practicing trainee sport and exercise psychologists and use our experience and knowledge to bring sports psychology and wellbeing concepts to life. But we don't do this alone. We speak to highly specialised guests who also share their personal and professional experiences with wellbeing and sports psychology. On the pod, we encourage listeners interested in all things sport to tune in whilst we provide insight on what working in the world of sport is like. We ask our guests the right questions to provide you with a deep dive into their specialised area of expertise and hope that after listening to each episode that you've taken something away with you. We want to redefine what making it in sport looks like. We hope that by speaking to guests who have made a successful career in sport, we can do just that. Now, let's get into another episode of the Young Player Wellbeing Podcast. We hope you enjoy. Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Um, of course, I'm back. Tony, Tony sort of handled everything last week, and we appreciate that. It was another good episode, mate. I was actually impressed that you done so well without me. So, cheers for taking a bit of leadership there. Ah, uh, thank you very much, Brad. I uh, yeah, had to step up to the plate a little bit there. There was a few times where I thought, oh, I'm waffling here. I need Brad to get me back on track, but we pulled for it. And yeah, like you said, I think it was a good episode. So I'm glad you liked it. Good there for me. Um, so I've got a bit of a, a mountain of an intro here for our next guest, and I think this is going to be a better of an episode just based on the the conversations that uh, we've had in the past. So our guest today is Graham Robertson. He formerly played for Dundee United, Rafe Rovers and Millwall. He's currently working in the charity sector, putting his skills to use as a director for volunteering matters. He's also in a unique unique position as a coach and an academy dad, with his son being in and out of an SPFL pre-academy. So there's plenty to get stuck into. Graham, how are you getting on, mate? Yeah, I'm good. Um, that was a nice intro, so thanks, Brad. Thanks, Tony. I'm glad to be here. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm delighted to sort of support what you guys are doing, to you know, support the guys that are in the academies around their well-being and stuff. And hopefully some of what I'll say today will resonate with some of them and give them, give them something to think about. I'm sure it will, mate. Um, we'll crack on with the questions, just like, as we like to do. We'll let you sort of tell your own story. So, if you could, just tell us a bit about your experiences in sport growing up. You know, I mentioned a bit at the start, but I'm sure there's plenty more for you to elaborate on for us. Yeah, I mean, I guess so. I grew up in I grew up in Fife, so I'm a Glenrothes boy originally, and uh, I guess where I grew up and where I went to school and stuff. One of the best distractions in life was playing a bit of sport and getting out there and, and and football was always always a big one for me so I mean the school I went to was it was local comprehensive school there was a whole mix of deprivation in the area and all of that sort of stuff so you tend to find in those like slightly more working class towns and areas that that football and sport can be a real outlet for people and a real opportunity for you to get get on in life and all of that sort of stuff so played football from a really young age um, I know we're going to talk a wee bit about the difference between sort of academy setups these days and how it was in my day, but uh, my start in football was uh, my dad was a coach and uh, my brother, who's four years older than me, played for a team and I started, they were under 12, so under 12s was about the earliest you started playing any organised football when I when I kicked off. 
um, and I started playing for them when I was eight. So I played for I played at under twelve level for four years before I was actually playing against people that were the same age as me. So I think that a lot of that sort of stood me in good stead for what came later in life through obviously going on and playing playing football professionally. But I learned at quite a young age how to sort of handle myself on the football pitch again because I was always playing against boys that were bigger than me. I guess so that 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 was kind of starting point and ground, grounding for me. And I think you know things around that are a little bit different different today and uh, I know we're going to talk a wee bit more about the academy setups and stuff as well so yeah that was that was kind of my introduction through school football and through my brother and my dad into, into football but it was always a good outlet certainly for me yeah yeah brilliant mate so kind of working class background you've, you've came from and obviously you sound like you're a bit of a baller from an early age eight years old playing at under 12 level so you've got four years on most people at that level so that that's probably a good indicator that you went on to play at a pretty good level from there. So I suppose it ties into our second question we've got for you. You've mentioned that football was less organised. We've kind of alluded to that there during your youth. So how does that compare to the modern academy setup? And what do you think the main differences are and perhaps implications for players now versus players uh, from, from your kind of era? Yeah, I mean, I think... Um... So my, in, in my day, I mean, from organised football started at around under 12. So that was when you started to properly play any. So you were usually in secondary school before there was any organised football. There was some stuff at primary school, but not in the way, you know, I know I'm a coach. I'm a coach with local club now. I live in East Odeon and Haddington and I coach young kids and I've had been coaching them since they were five year old, you know. So there's a lot more organised football goes on. But I think in my day, there was a lot more football down at the park and football with your mates and jackets as goalposts and all of those kind of cliches that, that existed back in the day as well. But similarly at a professional level, they didn't have the academy setups in the way in the way that they do now. There was absolutely, you know, coaching that happened at professional clubs with, with young players and and certainly, you know, right through from that early age from that under twelve setup, I was training with the likes of you know mentioned Dundee United. I, I ended up being on an S form, which is both a schoolboy form as it was called in, in, in those days with Dundee United. But I was I was living in Fife and travelling over and training up in Dundee. But you didn't have this there wasn't the same tie in in the way that I think, you know, clubs these days from sort of age eight, nine and ten are looking at pre academy stuff with, with with guys and then from ten years old they're looking at bringing people in and being part of a, a group and an age group and stuff. I certainly had you know, I played football for my, my, my league club in Fife. I played and trained with Dundee United, but there was also opportunities to play and train with other clubs. There wasn't that same sort of necessarily that you were tied to one club. So at, at various points, I trained with like say Hearts and Hibs and other and, and other clubs from the area as well when I was younger. But Dundee United were the one that sort of kept came coming back and kind of signing me on those forms. I think pros of my time were possibly not quite so much pressure attached around all of that because you had that sort of variation of maybe being able to train with other clubs and you were still playing. So I, I right the way through to under 16 level, I still played local football with my local team and my mates and my pals and stuff as well. So you weren't pulled out of that environment as well. I think there's a little bit more pressure around that academy side if people sign pro youth that they have to step away from playing with their friends and they're put into that much more structured environment and stuff. I mean, ultimately, there's pros and cons to both in, in, in my eyes. I think that, you know, the, the pros from my day definitely were that I still got to play with my pals. I still got to experience football in different with different managers, different coaches and different styles as well. 
but I think some of the stuff that comes with the academy in terms of the sort of technical level of coaching that they get and, and the structure around that and the fact that they're in a core group maybe for a number of years so they can form bonds as they're going through that, the different age groups and stuff as well. You know, I think there are definite pros to that as well. And um, so, yeah, I think there's a, there, there's bits in, on both sides, to be honest. Yeah, thanks for that, mate. So just some of the pros that you mentioned, probably not as much pressure. I mean, you, you're getting to play with your mates and probably really establish that love for the game that we, we hear about so much and also getting exposed to different managers. And I know that's something that certainly you've experienced in your time and we'll pick up on that a little bit later on. But I just yeah. wanted to refer back to something that you mentioned from that 12 to, is it the 12 to 16 kind of age? Yeah. You can just play with whichever pro youth team you like until you sign. Is it S forms at sixteen, or could you just? Yeah, it was around about it was around, around about the age of fifteen. I signed schoolboy schoolboy forms. So at that point, I was more affiliated with Dundee United. But certainly from the age of twelve to fifteen, I was training with various different clubs, and there wasn't necessarily that pressure at such a young age to tie you down to one club. And that and that kind of worked both ways. I think. For the clubs themselves, they got to look at a wider range of players and, and and have different ones training. But also for you as a young player, you got to experience different coaches and and, and different styles. And certain certain coaches and managers have different styles and way that they want to play. So I was quite comfortable. I mean, I, at that age, I just loved football, right? And I just wanted to play. So if there was an opportunity to play, and I would get asked to go along and train or play wherever, I was I was generally speaking quite happy to do it. I mean. Looking back, you know, obviously I can reflect as a parent now, you know, the sacrifice that my mum and dad made just to, for, there was a lot of travel involved with it if you were going through to Dundee or going through wherever from Fife and stuff. Um, so there was quite a bit of commitment side of it involved with that. But yeah, there wasn't the same pressure to be tied down to a particular club at such a young age when I, when I was coming through, although it was usually around that sort of 15, 16 age where you started to get a little bit of that more of that pressure to say, look, we want you to sign for us. We want you to commit to us, you know, and, and that's where the schoolboy forms bit kind of came in. OK, so I'm just sort of reflecting on wondering why it's different now, I suppose the financial pressure that clubs in that league are probably under in order to compete with all teams around them is probably an attitude like we need to get this boy locked in at like nine or ten um, yeah. and he's, he's not allowed to go anywhere else because we could see us making hundreds of thousands or potentially millions off of him whereas the money back in that day I suppose yeah. wasn't as I definitely agree with that side of it because we all know the thing if you've got homegrown players and if they've come through the club and there can be even if they leave and go on there can be knock-on fees and stuff so I, I definitely think that's an element of it I do also just think there's been a bit more structure and organization put around it so that these because just the nature of the fact that the academies exist means that clubs are looking to tie people down younger and um, you know we might come on to discuss I don't know how much I agree with the whole time kids down at a young age or not. And, you know, I know we're going to talk about my my, my sons at that kind of age with the pre-academy stuff at the moment. And I'm I'm finding it quite a conflict, if I'm honest, because I've, I've obviously been through some of the, these experiences myself. Um, I think there's a lot to be said for certainly at a younger age, kids just getting to enjoy playing football. And I, and I do feel like I definitely came through in an era where I had the advantage that I could do a bit of both. I could get that exposure to what was needed to play at a level that was maybe going to take you on to maybe play professionally and, and some of the, you know, additional pressure that comes with that. But at the same time, I was still allowed to just play with my mates, play with the local club, 
you know, established my own way of style of playing and how to play football and, and all of the stuff that went with that too. And I, and, I, and I do wonder if some of that's lost with this early age sort of academy stuff. Yeah, I, th- I think that's so interesting that you're almost having that debate of whether it's more or less beneficial that the young players get tied down to the club straight, like when they're so young at the age of 10, 12, because it is interesting that you've already touched upon the fact that when you were competing with these other um, football clubs and teams, whether it was at school or whether you were going, I think you mentioned, uh, was it Hibs or Hearts that you were perhaps training with at different points? It does allow you to understand how to adapt your um, learning style, how to adapt your play to different coaches, how to adapt to different teams. Um, if you're playing at school, most likely based off the level you said you were playing at at the age of eight, you were probably playing, you know, probably one of the best players on the park, you know, when you're playing those games, which allowed you to then experience what it's like, perhaps not being one of the standout players when it when you went to go and compete against the more competitive age ranges. So you're, you're actually developing really crucial soft skills that yeah. can have a big impact in life. And and again, when it comes to perhaps a player getting released at, let's say, the age of 16 and they've been stuck in one club since they were 10, they wouldn't have had that experience. So it makes that transition out of club work a lot harder. Um, and they might find it even more overwhelming than someone else who has been through perhaps your experience. So it's a really interesting debate there. And there's probably a bit of research we've done there, it has to be said. But yeah, interesting. Stony. Yeah, definitely interesting to hear some of the the parallels there between the kind of the modern era and uh, your own era, uh, Graham. I think you've touched on a couple of things that's going to tie us into our next question, which was to do with sacrifices and pressure, something that is all too familiar on this podcast, I think, from any guests that we got on. So as a youth and professional footballer, what were your own experiences of well-being and psychology? Um, I mean... It certainly wasn't talked about and certainly wasn't there wasn't the support around that there is there is today um, and I know that even just through my day job and what I do you know working in a charity now today but and managing people and working with people but you know it wasn't something that was really massively spoken spoken about in my day when I was coming through I think if you were lucky you maybe had the odd coach around you that maybe mentored you a little bit or you maybe had an experienced player around you that maybe you know took a liking to you and, and would, would give you a wee bit of coaching and, and, and helping and around how you were doing as a person but I think certainly when I played a lot of that came down to yourself maybe your family around you your friends around you there wasn't the same kind of support mechanisms that you know and and that would be definitely one of the things I would talk about in a real pro for the academy set up the fact that you know I'm speaking to you guys and I know you are working quite closely with Kilmarnock Academy players Dundee United Academy players at the moment and you guys are a sort of separate outlet for them to have some of these conversations and explore some of that space and we didn't have any of that when when I came through as as a as a young player and 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 certainly when I sort of started out in my early career actually playing in the first team and things like that as well which we'll get on to um and I think it would be ma- massively beneficial looking back you know there's there's many a time I think about you know my football career career and uh, and certainly the early parts of it you know with the classic hindsight of oh, I wish I knew now knew then what I know now kind of thing in terms of how to handle certain situations and how what what behaviors to have and stuff as well so I'm I'm hugely supportive of the fact that you guys are putting that wrap around around well-being and, and you know are supporting players with the psychology of the game as well because it's a massive 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 part of it I mean even in my own experiences and and you know you've been 
without ever having seen me play when I when I was eight years old. You've been very complimentary of my football, but I was a, I was a good footballer, right? And I knew I was a good footballer, but so were loads of my pals and so were loads of my peers that were similar ages to me. And there are definitely, and, and I think every footballer can tell you the story about the guy that was better than them that never made it for whatever reason in their life because they, they took the wrong path or wrong decisions or they, they fell out of love with football and just stopped playing or whatever it is, you know? Um, so there is so much of it comes down to your mentality and that sort of strength and willingness and hard work and, and resilience. There's, there's so much about it as, I mean, I, you know, we're, we're going to go through a bit of where my career went. I, I took so many knocks on the way and kind of got back up, went again, tried again. And, 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 you know, and part of that was just my character. Part of that was support around me from parents and stuff. Um, and I think part of it maybe just came from that mix that we've talked about that I had from a young, you know, I played it, played the older kids from a very young age and all, you know, all of these things just build up resilience over time in you that you maybe don't even realise is happening, right? And I'm sure, you know, there are lots of situations that, that, that the guys who are working with in the academies are, are finding tough or they're finding difficult or they're finding that competitive element against their peers or whatever that, absolutely just builds resilience all the time if you can bounce back and go again and accept there are going to be tough times i mean most footballers will tell you there's a lot more down times in football than there are up in amazing times in football you know so you've got to be able to kind of deal and cope with that and it takes a certain kind of mentality and person to do that but you can also learn it as well and get support and how you get better at it and i think that's why it's great that the stuff you guys doing exists for me yeah, I appreciate the kind words around the, the programme and the, what we've been doing. Uh, have been working hard to support players in the right way and hopefully just trying to get that sort of blend, as you kind of were referring to, correct, that sort of helps them get to as high as they can go. And it is a shame to see so many players, when they get to 15, 16, fall out of love for the game, whether that's other interests, you know, it's a key age, I think, whether it's other interests, whether that's girls or other peer pressures that are coming their way or whether that's just an injury I think yeah raising awareness on the importance of resilience and when challenges come around and overcoming them can sort of help them to realize when these moments do come around if I really want this i.e to go to the top of my game this is just another thing I'm gonna have to overcome and it sounds like it's something that was part of your life as well there was just maybe not someone there at the time telling you and all the things I picked up on, which are still things that we talk about with our own players, are support network, um, you know, the impact of personality and leaders around you, and that resilience as well that can all help to create that psychologically safe space. So, although there might not have been someone there at the time, it sounds like there was a bit of of hearing hearing that um, kind of going on as well. Yep. And just moving on, Graham, you eventually signed with Wraith Rovers at professional level despite being at Dundee United uh, could you tell us how your experiences at each club ended up shape, shaping your decision because I know there were two managers in place at both clubs there that were pretty different yes um, I think it's safe to say they were they were both called Jim or Jimmy but they, they had very different styles about them so so I was at Dundee United during the Jim McLean era who's obviously someone who's synonymous with, with the club and United had massive success and they, they looked over the 80s and 90s under, under Jim McLean and I was joining them maybe towards the end of that period of success um, but they had a lot of they they were one of the bigger clubs in terms of that youth they, they were quite well known for 
bringing young players through and, and putting young players into the team and stuff. But it was quite a pressured environment. I mean, I was on S form there from 15 to 16. Um, you you essentially had the Dundee, Dundee United players, you had the Fife, Dundee United players, you had ones coming over from Edinburgh, you had ones coming up from the North coming down as well. And there was a really quite intense rivalry even within the Dundee United setup between the different groups and cliques and all of that sort of stuff. And round about that time, um, Jimmy Nicol joined Wraith Rovers and uh, this was in 1993 it would have been. Um, and uh, they were obviously a very local club to me, living in Glenrothes, Kirkcaldy was 10 minutes away basically. And I got the opportunity just to go along and train with them a couple of times. Dundee United were looking for me to commit and sign for them on, on what was an apprenticeship uh, scheme at the time, um, as an apprentice when I was leaving school. And I just got the opportunity to go and you know talk to Wraith and train with them a couple of times. And I was really impressed. There was a couple of things. One was the first training session I went that was for the under 16s, under 17s, Jimmy Nicol was actually taking the training session himself. So it was quite a big difference from having, you know, Jim McLean was more a figure in the background and you had the, the, the coaches for the different areas at Dundee United. So I thought that was quite interesting. And then I just started to look at what was happening at first team level and he'd been taking guys that were 16, 17, 18 year old, you know, the few names that you might know, Colin, Colin Cameron, Stevie Crawford, Jason Dare, all came through that Wraith Rovers first team and all started playing when they were 17 or 18, round about the time I was looking to join as well. So I just started to look at the pathway. There's no question, Dundee United were the bigger club, right? They were Premier League club, Wraith were in the, the what would be now the championship at the time. Um, but something just felt like actually I was going to feel more at home. There was a style of play as well, Jimmy Nicol. I was a striker, I was an attacking midfielder. I, you know, I liked to get on the ball and go and create and do things. and. Dundee United were quite rigid in the way that they played. Jimmy Nichols was a bit more free-flowing in the way he wanted to approach things. So there was a few different elements that sort of influenced that decision. But ultimately, and I think this is an important thing for, for any of your young guys that are, you know, looking at their careers as, as they're sitting in the academies and stuff, you're going to find coaches that do like you and don't like you through your career. You're going to find styles of coaching that you relate to more and don't relate to more throughout your career as well. And not to be afraid to, because from the outside in, it might have looked like a strange decision for me, given I'd been training with the likes of Dundee United Hearts and various things to go and sign the Wraith Rovers. But for me, it was just, it just felt like the right fit and the right coach and the right style. And, you know, I guess I was kind of proven right because I signed for Wraith Rovers just before they had the like most successful time in their, their, their history when they went on to win the Coca-Cola Cup and play in Europe and all of that sort of stuff. So it was a very successful time for the club of which I was ended up being part of. But um, yeah, I definitely think there, there's you need to remember when making decisions around these things that your side of it and how it feels to use just as important as any pressures you might be getting around you to sign for a particular club or to sign with a particular manager and things like that. Yeah, it's interesting that you sort of took into consideration the style of play and the environment and how that was ultimately going to shape your own career. And like you said, it sounds like it was the right decision in the end. But just before we move on, I want to tap into that sort of decision a little bit more. You did mention that when you went to Wraith, you mentioned in the past that you maybe struggled to sort of break into that first team during those first kind of few yep. seasons. Do you think maybe the success of the team and how strong they were almost worked against you in a sense? Um, I mean, there's no there's no question it did. I mean, it's interesting. I'm, Wraith Rovers is the type of club, you know, I'm still friends with people there. There's still a few people there that are still the same people that were there when I was there 20 odd years ago. 
And I think at any other time in their history, the way I was playing at the time as a 17 or 18 year old, I would have absolutely been in their first team and playing for the first team. Um, I think I recalled to you when I spoke to you before, there was a season when I scored 22 goals in 18 games for the reserve team. And I didn't get a game in the first team that season, but the three strikers ahead of me were uh, the one, some of the ones I've mentioned. So Colin Cameron, Stevie Crawford, Gordon Biel was there, Craig Brewster was there. Those four like established first team strikers that were all ahead of me in the pecking order. So I was quite often involved. In those days, they only had two subs and a goalkeeper. So you only had 15 players getting stripped. So what they used to do is quite often have 18 players would be in the squad and then 15 players get stripped. So I spent about a year or a year and a half being in the 18, so being considered good enough to be in the squad, but very rarely getting a wee slot here or there where actual stripping on the bench. But I'd be travelling when Wraith were in the Premier League and when they were playing in Europe, I was travelling, I was there, I was warming up on the pitch, I was experiencing all these things, but I wasn't actually getting to play in the game. So, um, and I, I guess what there's, there's two or three things around that, I guess, for me. One is... I don't regret that in any way, shape or form, because the experiences I got from that were still still really positive. Um, and also, um, I think there's an element of uh, remembering that even, even when you are playing for the reserves or maybe not getting picked for the first team, you can still be making an impression with coaches and stuff. And I think we'll, we'll come on to a, a, a bit of that as well. But Jimmy Nicholl was the manager there and he, and he went on to sign me a few other times in my career beyond that so he obviously still saw something in me as a player even as a young player when I was you know showing that resilience and keeping going even when I wasn't actually getting selected for the first team Um, so I think there's a lot to be said as a young player in particular to not get frustrated just keep doing your best and keep performing and you'll get your opportunity further along the line. Yeah that's, that's spot on mate I think it's just about like we always talk about in this podcast, redefining what making it is. I mean, it sounds like you had a successful and maybe more importantly, enjoyable time there. And if that's if that's all what football is, you love to enjoy it at the highest level you can play at. Then I feel yeah, you. Yeah, I wouldn't change any of that. I wouldn't change any of that time. I mean, I was I was in Bayern when Wraith went one 0 up in the, the old Olympic Stadium. I was there on like I was in the strip, but I was on the bench. I was at the Coca Cola Cup final when they beat Celtic in the dressing room afterwards celebrating with the players and everything you know there's so many bits of that time and I know a lot of young players that were there at a similar time to me still hark back to it just being a really special time in the history of the club and we got to we got to be part of that and the way that the club was formed it wasn't a massive squad the first team squad was maybe 17 or 18 players the the the, the youth team squad was maybe seven or eight players and all of us got to feel like we were a big part of that success over those two or, two or three years so yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't change that for the for the world. To be honest, some of my most positive experiences in football, I didn't even play in the games. If you know what I mean. So you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, brilliant, mate. Great stories. Bayern Munich, uh, beating Celtic as well. Might be happy about that. Might not be. Uh, but anyway, um, <laughs> that kind of takes us on to your time at Wraith because you received a great piece of advice, which I will let you tell our listeners during this time and it probably ties in even a lot to what you're saying now so could you yeah. share this with our listeners and how it ultimately shaped your career as a footballer yeah so i so i joined draith as a 17 year old on what was at the time it was an apprenticeship scheme but we were yts at the time so it was like a youth training scheme um and you know just for context for that by the way so my that was my first professional contract and we were i was on 48 quid a week 
and we got and we got paid in a little we got paid in cash in a little brown envelope that we had to go and pick up through the bank down at the thing and you would go and get your 48 quid in your wee envelope so it gives you some sort of you know and that and that was in the mid 90s so it's not that long ago you know but it gives you some sort of context of what footballers were maybe getting paid in those days as well um, but one of the, the we had we had a brilliant a really experienced assistant manager under um Jimmy Nicol and it's a guy called Martin Harvey who had been at Sunderland and various big clubs down south and Jimmy Nicol had known him from his time when so Jimmy Nicol obviously played at Man United played at Rangers he'd had a lot of contacts in the game through his time at Northern Ireland and stuff as well um, and I remember in one of my early days I can't remember what was, we were maybe just mucking around in the changing room or what we're doing whatever you would be doing and our downtime in between training and, and getting home and stuff at the end of the day and I remember him just coming in and he sort of pulled me aside and I'd, been, I'd, I'd been like massively messing around I'd just been doing whatever having a bit of bantam stuff and he just said to me remember someone's always watching and that was it and he just walked away again and it just stayed with me for the entire time and he said it in a way where it was like you know I no matter where you are, whether you're cleaning the terraces, whether you're cleaning the boots, whether you're, you know, it's the end of the day and you're having your downtime with other players, whether you're playing in a reserve game on a Monday night when you think nobody's there and the manager's not there or whatever, he was essentially telling me someone at the club's always got eyes on how you're behaving, what your attitude is, how you approach things, what, and, and it really stuck with me and it, it really hit home. And I, I then from that day, and it still I still use it now. I, I manage people, and I'm just like, just remember that no matter where you are and what you're doing, someone's always got someone's always interested in how you're doing, approaching things, or how you're going about stuff. And I think it's a really strong bit of advice, especially in that football environment where, you know, you can go through massive periods where you feel like the coach coach doesn't like you or you're not getting played or you're on the bench or you're playing you know you, you were playing with a certain team and you're training with a different team now and all of these kind of things that happen over a period of time in football and it just reminded me that that, that it doesn't matter you still need to do your best you still need to be the best of yourself you still need to apply yourself because someone will still be watching someone will still be you know and actually sometimes it's when you show those bits of resilience in those spaces that that's when you most you most impress a coach or a manager for them to go actually I sent him up to Forfar on a Monday night and he didn't know where to go and he went up and he tried his best and he scored two goals and he, you know he proved me wrong kind of thing and you know you find yourself getting a wee, wee opportunity out of that or whatever so yeah that that, that was uh, a bit of advice I got really early in my career and I think it shaped a lot of what was to come for me because it stuck stuck with me throughout really. Yeah on you go Tony sorry. No I think it's so interesting I think it's almost that way where it it links back to that idea of if you just keep working towards those goals and you just focus on yourself. Well, this is what I'm hearing from it, where, you know, if you focus on yourself, you don't pay attention to what other people are doing, or you've got the, you know, whoever might be the popular kid in your team at that age, who's doing this and everyone's following. But actually, if you just stick to what it is, so, you know, the goals that you're working towards and, and where you want to get to, then and eventually people are going to be paying attention to you and, and, and it will come back to, you know, you'll come back and benefit from those hard graphs like you said like going up and doing that game away that you probably don't want to do but actually if you go and do it then you know someone will take notes of it or it will be remembered in the future um so yeah. really interesting words of advice and yeah really great stuff yeah and it's definitely stuck with me from when we spoke before not that i've been just going about 
telling people if someone's always watching you, but it might be <laughs> something that I might use for my players when the season yeah. starts. And, and I think uh, in, a, in, a, in a positive and a negative way, right? I think you can you, you yeah. can channel that really positively in that even on the downtimes and when things are hard, just remember that if you perform or you do stuff that it will be recognised, but also remembering in those moments where you might get carried away or you might be in a group environment where you might start doing some silly or daft stuff, that a wee reminder to check yourself and not get too carried away with that side of it as well because it's really easy in a changing room environment and a group of boys especially if you're at a young younger age as well to start fall you know start following some of the dafter stuff that might go on as well and i always found myself just you know not 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 getting involved because there's part of being teammates and part of being the team that that's really important around as well but just you know making sure you're not overstepping the mark as well so i think it kind of it was a bit of advice that I kind of took both ways, if you know what I mean. Nice. Yeah, love it. And and I'm assuming that you took it with you as well when, you know, Jimmy Nicol then signed you when he went down to Millwall. He was quickly sacked, though, I think, after about six months, if I remember rightly. And during yeah. your four-year spell there, you played under five different managers. So tell us about the sort of challenges that that brought around. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it sort of leads on from everything we've just just been saying, right? So part of so part of my someone's always watching, right? So I just I've just sitting on the one hand told you that for nearly eighteen months or two years under Jimmy Nicol, he never played me in the first team at Wraith, went from the age of seventeen to nineteen, and then he gets a job at Millwall and he signed me like two months later and took me down there, right? And I went on a much bigger and better deal. I got a, like I signed I signed a four four year deal at Millwall. Got a completely life changing experience. Moved out of home, got an office, moved to London, and that came about because he knew I was a young player that was going to you know had the right kind of application to maybe take that opportunity and stuff as well. You know, so it's interesting to think that the irony and the fact that he didn't play me in the first team at Wraith, but then signed me for Millwall when he got the first opportunity to go. It really falls back on that model of saying that you know someone's always watching and paying attention as well. But then, of course, yes, within a few months of me being there, he he lost his job, which is always an, another part of football that we all have to you know be aware of and get used to the fact that you know and quite often and especially in my playing days, and I think it still happens quite a lot through clubs today. When the manager loses their job, quite a few that coaches change as well. Sometimes the academy director changes. Sometimes that filters down further. Sometimes not as well. Um, so when Jimmy Nicol left, his assistant manager left, the coaches that were around him that knew me all left and suddenly I was like thrust into this. I'd, I'd only just moved to London six months before as a 19 year old and um, I was thrust into playing under a different manager. And and yeah, over the course of that four years, um, I went, I was in favour, I was out of favour, I was in favour again, I was out of favour again. I mean, it literally was almost a case of your face either fitted or didn't, depending on the manager and the style of play. There was a manager that came in that basically wanted to go old school Millwall style football and just wanted to lump the ball up the park and chase it in the corners. And that was not my style of play. So I was out of favour at that point. Then that didn't work. So they got a different manager in that wanted to play football and get the ball down. And I was in favour again. And like, you know, so all of these things happen over that time. And I think, again, for me, lots of my experiences before that had helped build my resilience towards that. I never really allowed myself to um, get too despondent when I wasn't involved because I recognised that there was a bigger picture here. And that, again, you know, some of the stuff that you pointed towards, Tony, that you're obviously, you know, reiterating with the, the younger players as well was just keep my head down, keep working hard, keep doing the things that I think were helping me develop. I was still a young age. 
and there was some really interesting periods during that time. There was a lot of Millwall brought in a lot of different experienced players. I had the fortune we had Ray Wilkins was there for about six months as a player towards the end of his career at Millwall. Um, there were various other guys that would come in, and I would just try and like you know chat to them, do a bit of extra training at the end with them, whatever it was, just to get those little extra bits and snippets, and whether it was staying staying later for an hour at the end and doing doing a bit more. And I became, I guess, without even really realising it, I became quite well known at the club as someone who would do that wee bit of extra training, would work, would go that extra yard, would work a bit harder. And then, of course, what I knew that meant was if the manager changed again. One of the first things the coaches that are still around are doing are saying, well, you've got this boy, Graham Robertson, who's just been here for three or four years now, he keeps his head down, keeps trying, not maybe deserves a chance, all of that sort of stuff. Narrative starts coming out, right? So, um, yeah, it absolutely brings brings challenges when you have those changes. But I think it's about you as an individual recognising, well, what can I do? What what you know, what bits of this can I control? The bits you can control are what you do right, your extra training, you're, you're, you're doing your best to develop yourself, whatever it happens to be. And I think that period of lots of change and lots of managers just kind of meant that, any, you know, I, I, I played professionally for 12 or 13 years in the end and anything that got thrown at me after that was quite easy to handle, I think. Just interesting as well, because obviously you weren't through this period of time where you're sort of in favour, out of favour, which is tricky enough on its own. And of course, you're, you're you're playing professional, so that adds an extra weight to it. But then I think on top of all that, you're playing for Millwall, which has probably got some of the harshest, one of the harshest fan bases in the, in the world. Um, how did the dealing with, I think, having a fan base such as that on top of everything else that you're going through, how did you cope with all of that? Um. I mean, I think you're right. They're def- definitely quite a, a, a notorious fan base. I think it's one of those classics when you were winning and the things were going well. It was great because actually they're one of the most passionate fan bases because of that and stuff as well. I think there were definitely some times where it was more challenging uh, when you weren't winning or when things weren't going going so well for you as an individual or a player as well. Um, I guess I would, you know, one of the things I touch on as well is I was probably fortunate enough to play. So I played sort of through the 90s and into the early noughties, basically. Um, there wasn't the same sort of social media. There wasn't the same sort of pressure around all of that sort of stuff. I, I often find it uh, quite quite exasperating when I, you know, even just these days when a team gets announced, right, there's about a million comments under it on social yeah. media about who should be playing and who should, you know, everybody's a man, keyword warrior, keyboard warrior and a manager online and everything, right? So we didn't have that side of it to cope with in 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 the same sort of way but it didn't mean you didn't hear it or know if you know i mean you still had the same thing on the pitch you would know if people were like sort of grumbling a bit when you made a mistake or like you know get shouting things when you had the ball and all of that 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 sort of stuff um but for me it's about just everything i've talked about before just you you've got to just kind of let it wash off recognize that all you can you know talk think about the things you can control which is what you do yourself try not to be too harsh on yourself with it as well like i mean i'm you know i'm coaching coaching young kids now today and one of the things i talk to them all all the time is in every single game you're going to make mistakes like all of us are going to make mistakes you're going to make you're going to make a misjudgment or you're going to play a straight pass or you're going to do whatever and a big part to me and what this was one of the things that probably stood me in good stead and why i probably ended up prolonging my career a bit longer and stuff as well in terms of who I played with and stuff too 
the one thing Millwall fans looked for is if you lost the ball was that you reacted and went and tried to get it back, right? That was like almost a given for a club like that and a team like that. So, and that wasn't necessarily my natural disposition. I wasn't necessarily your, your, you know, your ball winner type player. I was much more of a creative type football and stuff. But I woman well learned at a young age playing for Millwall that if I lost the ball and didn't chase after it, I was going to know about it kind of thing, you know. So little things like that that adapt I, I adapted my game and adapted my style and how I played that helped me be a better player more long term as well. So I think there's bits of that that you learn through those experiences too. Yeah, that's really great. And I really like that almost controlling the controllables and then forgiving yourself for the mistakes you make and not actually dwelling on them because like you say they're in the past so you can't control them but actually being proactive and thinking right what can I do to try and make the situation better and as you said there for for you that was going and trying to wing the ball back and also win the hearts of the Millwall fans back at the same time so yeah brilliant. Don't don't get me wrong Tony I used to be um, really bad for about 24 hours and then I would let it go. Yeah. So usually yeah, yeah. the night of the game, you don't sleep, right? If you've had a bad game or made a few mistakes, I, I, I definitely had all of that when I was younger. But I learned over time to manage that and, and actually to let, let myself feel that as well. There's an element of you've yeah. got to let yourself wall yeah. in the, the, the mistake and the, the bit of it, but you've then got to get up the next day and go, OK, what is, what's the stuff I can do about that, right? Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. Love it. And you mentioned, Graham, that you, you did kind of prolong your career. And when we spoke last, you're a self-proclaimed journeyman, I think is, is the term that you mentioned. How do you view that term? And do you think there's any sort of negative or positive connotations on that today? Um, I mean, well, yeah, we brought we talked about this when we, we, we chatted last time. And, uh, you know, I think there is quite a lot of negative con- connotations with the so-called journeyman footballer, right? But I think it's about, uh, I, I'm actually quite proud that I was a journeyman footballer in a lot of ways. There were a lot of positives for me in that in, in, in life. Uh, that So there's loads of things that, you know, I, I've, I've spoken to you as well at length how, you know, I'm, I'm now 10 or 12 years into my career in the charity sector. Sometimes now when I talk about being a footballer, it's almost like I'm talking about somebody else because it's like two different times in my life and stuff as well. But there was so much I learned, learned through that uh, that experience. But the whole the whole journeyman piece, I think the big thing for me was there's almost an expectation, you know, even now when I so I'll speak to people and say I was a professional footballer, and they'll be like, oh wow, that must have been amazing. And da 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 da. And I'm like, of course it was. It was brilliant. I got to live the lifestyle of being paid to do something I love. Right. There was so many positives that came through being a professional footballer. But I wasn't famous. I didn't make millions of pounds doing it. And there's almost that there's like these connotations today that if you're a professional footballer, success is Andy Robertson or success is Messi or Ronaldo if you're going to the right top, 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 top level of it and stuff as well. But there are there are thousands of people who just make a almost a regular living out of being a footballer that's enough and an enjoyable career for them for the whole time that they play. But they are never really, you know, nobody will really, you know, nobody that does this podcast today will know who I was, right? Or that I played or anything like that, other than the fact that we've spoken about it and talked about it. And I'm perfectly comfortable and okay with that. And actually, I quite enjoyed the fact that I was a footballer that was never famous because I could still live a normal life and do all the different normal stuff that you do in life and not have to deal with all the other baggage that maybe goes with playing with one of the more high profile clubs or all of that sort of stuff too. Um, so again, you know, I think you guys have talk, talked about you know, definitions of success and what does success mean in football and all of that sort of stuff. And what I would say is I had an incredible t- 
time. I made some of the best friends that I've got in life still to this day. You know, I play golf regularly with guys that I played football with. I meet up with people. I go, I go across, I get invited to Wraith Rovers quite regularly. Go and, I, I commentate on the Wraith TV and do various stuff, bits around about that and stuff. Um, there's loads of perks I get out of the fact that I was associated with certain football clubs and played with certain football clubs and everything as well. Um, but I was I would not be described as someone who was a famous footballer, right? And I and I think there's there's you know, for me reflecting on it now, I think that was perfect for me. I don't think I would have enjoyed maybe everything else that might have gone with that 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 next level of of what's termed as success as well. Um. So yeah. Yeah, it's, it's making me think about if I've got my supporters hat on, like when we see players come through the academy and you think, oh, they're going to be the, the next big thing in the first team. But then, like, I don't know, 10, 15 of them come over three or four seasons and they're all gone. But they're maybe going playing somewhere else, whether that's in, like, League Two of England or League Two in Scotland. And you think, oh, what a waste. But really, like, that might have been their level all along. And um, yeah. if they're still making a successful career and they're happy about it, then... Where you know we should be as well. So yeah, that's that's so interesting, Graham, about the the journeyman point, and I'm I'm glad we've probably debunked some some myths around that as well, mate. So yeah, cheers for that. So our kind of next question is to do with life post football. So you mentioned you prolonged your career and had a successful career, and you just briefly mentioned the fact that it almost seems like two different people when you look back on your career now versus your career as a footballer. And something that, again, stuck with me was you mentioned that you got your mojo back in life after football. So where did that happen and how has that shaped your life and career today? So I think, you know, it it follows quite nicely on from the whole being a journeyman footballer, right? I I never... There was never any point, although I, I, I you know, I, I did very well when I signed for Millwall as a, as a young young lad, and and I did quite well financially at football overall. There was never a point that I was thinking I was going to be set for life through the, you know, ten or fifteen year career that I had at football sort of thing. So I always had my eye on what's next, what is what is there beyond football, what other things can I do in life and stuff. So I, I. I actually studied for a degree whilst I was at Millwall, so I got a degree um, in marketing and advertising whilst I was a footballer. Um, and part of that was just because I was interested enough to to do something like that. And part of that was me thinking, well, I'm not exactly, you know, smashing the lights out of it in my football career. It might, it could end any day kind of thing. So I need to have something else to fall back on and all of that sort of stuff. And what else might I do? Um, so I got a degree in marketing advertising and then when I first sort of stopped playing football, I worked and I, I, I ended up living in London for a number of years uh, through life taking me down there. But I started to work for sort of marketing and media agencies in London for a couple of years. And part of that was just a tra- transition into what I would describe as having a real job, basically. So, you know, I started working in an office, working 95, all, all of the sort of stuff that goes around that. But I never quite found... You know, I started working in sports marketing to begin with. I worked in, um, I did some sales and advertising and stuff as well. Um, and but I never quite found my calling with it. I was a little bit like, this is fine, but I'm not loving it. Or you know, it's not the same as I would feel when I was getting paid to play football and stuff. 
Uh, and then I, I got a job with Amnesty International. So I, I kind of quit my job in marketing and got a job working in fundraising team in London for Amnesty International, obviously the well-known human rights charity. And just almost straight away, that was the re-sign that I was like, okay, now I can actually do, take some of the transferable skills I'd learned in sport and football, but also through the marketing career that I'd had for a couple of years previously but do that for, so I went into fundraising and raising money on behalf of charities and it's now, you know, 12 or 13 years later, I've, that's what I've been doing for the last 12 or 13 years. I'm a director for a national charity called Volunteer Matters, as you mentioned. Um, basically, my job is to bring money in, so the charity goes and does all the good work that they do with, it, with, with, with the money that I bring in. My day job now involves, it's all about relationships, it's all about people um, and that was some, these were all skills I learned through being in a dressing room, being in football environment, having different managers, having different leaders, all stuff that I now take into my day job in terms of how I go about building relationships, how I go about managing people in my day job. Um, and it's amazing the amount of transferable skills, not only some of the stuff we talked about around resilience, around goal setting, around trying to achieve. Um, it's really interesting, my current CEO, I've worked under the same, my same boss now for nearly eight years and he he said I wasn't the most qualified person that applied for the so the job I got with him five or six years ago he said I wasn't the most qualified person that applied for that job but he immediately recognized because I'd played elite level at sport that I would have someone about me that would mean I would you know be able to be successful in the role so he took a punt on me on the basis of the background that I had in sport and that I'd been successful in another area basically and um, and thankfully, it's proved to be a really good working relationship, and I have, you know, I am in good successful in the role. But he, all, he, he told me that retrospectively. He basically said, you know, I just looked at the fact that you'd had that something about you that meant that you made it to be a professional sportsman, that told me that you would have something about you that will help you make it in, in what we do, sort of thing. So. Yeah, I guess it kind of all ties around to your whole point around, you know, we all recognise that with the way academies are set up now and with the way age groups are set up now not everybody's going to make it or actually you know probably only a small percentage are going to make it in the traditional sense straight into the first team in the club they're at some might filter through in the way that you've described and go and play lower leagues or find a level of football just below that that works for them and some might find themselves out the game entirely even at, in, at that younger age and i guess what i would say is that as long as you can take the experiences that you're having along the way, there's lots of things that you'll be doing in this environment and, and in sport that are going to be transferable into other areas of life and work. Yeah, summed up perfectly. I couldn't agree more. Something that we've banged on about <clears throat> quite a lot this season, transferable skills, and you mentioned sort of relationships and leadership and how these have ultimately shaped where you are today. And I think that's a great lesson for, for anybody listening. I definitely, definitely agree there. Like I can't even think of any more like better ways to summarise it because everything was yeah really like concise and yeah and like information was like packed in there as well. So that was just brilliant. Yeah, uh, totally agree. Uh, moving moving out from your sort of your role as a director then Graham and into your role as a dad if you can call it a role. Um, your your son's been in and out of pre-academy and I know it's something that you talk quite passionately about. So could you tell us about some of the challenges that he's faced and that you have faced being with him on that journey? Yeah, so my so my eldest 
eldest son's like he's like a mini me. Loves playing, loves playing sport, loves playing football, and and you know, and for lots of different reasons, he's he's found his passion in that. I've actually got got three boys, and and they're age ten, eight, and six now. So the eldest in particular is just at that age where obviously there's been a bit of pre academy interest. He's been in and out training with a couple of different clubs, um, at that pre academy level. And I guess from, you know, I found myself really conflicted with it for a lot of the reasons we touched on at, at, this, at the start of this uh, the, this podcast as well was just, um, I mean, I find it incredibly young to be put in a sort of more pressurised environment around around football. Um, and I, I'm a big advocate for kids just enjoying playing football in that year and learning to make mistakes and having less pressure on on, you know, Firstly, just yourself against your peers. I think the minute you go into those sort of pre-academy and pro-youth environments, there's an obvious barometer where you're going to look at where am I against everybody else that's around you and stuff as well. Um, but we met, you know, we mentioned some. We met. We mentioned at the start about the fact that I played from from when I was eight with an under twelve team until by the time I actually played under twelves, it felt really easy because I'd been playing against kids that were older than me all the time. I really think there's something there's there's a lot to be said for just all of this stuff. Like you know, at the moment there, there's no question. My my son's one of the best footballers in my local team that I coach, right? But he then gets to enjoy being scoring two or three goals and being creative and doing all the stuff that you do with that when you are one of the better players on the on the park and stuff. And I do think there's an element of kids, certainly at that younger age, we need to find a way to find that balance, I think. I think sometimes I'm being connected to a club and being in it pro-youth too young on two fronts. One, takes them away from having that fun side of it with their pals. But two, also means that it can become more difficult if they get to 13 or 14 and drop away or are one of the ones that get let go at that age or, or all these you know from my understanding decisions are made most years around whether kids get kept on again for an additional year and things like that and it just feels like a lot at a very young age to me and I'm still of that sort of maybe it's a slightly old school mentality with this but I'm still of that sort of mentality if someone's good enough they'll find their path to make it in football anyway and you know there's all kinds of story even in the modern era you look at somebody like uh I always use Jamie Vardy as an example in this, who was playing non-league until he's like 21 or 22, right? And then he ended up playing the Premier League within three or four years of that and stuff. So there are there are lots of different pathways to success in football in the same way there are lots of different definitions of what success in football is. Um, so I'm not dissing academies. I'm not saying academies shouldn't exist. I'm not saying I'm completely unsold on the idea because I, the, the flip side of that is what I have witnessed is really excellent training really excellent coaching that there were actually a lot of advantages watching my son play with other kids that were of similar ability and stuff as well in terms of pushing him and making him learn new things and all of that sort of stuff too so I don't know I just find myself really torn with it I don't really know as a dad and then there's other bits that go along with it um yeah particularly around that pressure bit and stuff as well I think there's pressure as parents then to that you want your kid to succeed um, I think I spoke to you about, I actually spoke to the academies about my own son and me finding there was a wee bit too much pressure with it and to come out of the academy again and, and we had a really healthy conversation around that. But I don't, I got the impression from the coach that not many parents would have that kind of conversation because they would almost see it as a detrimental thing. And mm. I think it comes into some of the space that you guys talk about as well, where maybe players don't feel comfortable making themselves look vulnerable or whatever as, as maybe being 
feeling that pressure and stuff as well and and that you need outlets and spaces to have that as well so yeah a lot to dissect and going on within that but I, I'm, I'm definitely finding myself quite conflicted and finding it quite a challenging space as a parent and how best to guide my own son through it and ultimately like I don't even know if he wants to be a footballer at the end. He enjoys football now, but I'm like, you know, I know everything we talked about at the start, I know he could be 15 or 16 and be thinking about doing something else or, or not wanting to do it anymore as well. So I don't want to push him down a pathway too early that might be something that, you know, I don't want him to fall out of love with football too young, I guess, is probably the overarching message there. Yeah, that's certainly what I'm hearing. It's a, it's a really interesting dynamic because, of course, you want your son to do well and, you know, if he wants to play, you want him to be successful as well, but you don't want to be the one putting that pressure on and then it becomes you that's the reason for him falling out of love with it. The same yep. as you don't want the, the setup to be the reason that he falls out of love with it either. I think the for me the the realistic take on it, and of course you're fully aware, Graham, is that at some point the pressure is gonna have to come, yep. but it's probably a question of is 10 the right age for it or is at another age? That's certainly a, a question I, I, I don't have the answer for. I'm, I'm not sure, Tony, if you had any thoughts on that because it's a real, it's an enigma, that one. Yeah, I think obviously, you know, my own experience was being heavily involved in a tennis academy growing up and I ended up not being able to even want to pick up a racket until I got to like probably 18 not even then I was in my 20s before I wanted to pick up a racket again and I took a step away from the sport at about 15, 16. Um, so it's tough because it, but then there's other people that obviously they thrive in that situation but obviously it's, it's all down to I think individuals. Um, what is interesting that I was just thinking about when you were talking there Graham was if you knew that your son was um, in an academy where they had um, the likes of myself and Brad as well being coaches there to support them. Would that change your mind on whether you'd be willing or, or not or more open to your son being involved in that academy? Yeah, I mean, I think it would definitely be. And I mean, yes, is the answer to that, probably the short answer. Um, and, you know, I'm not just saying that because I'm on the podcast with you guys, but I think what you are offering and doing is, is, is superb. And it's part part of the reason I was, I was interested in chatting to you guys in the first place. But there's a wider piece here, right, that 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 makes it more interesting for me, having been played football myself and having had that experience as well, because there's an element of, and I had it myself, I'm not going to name the clubs I went into with my son, but they try and sell you the dream, right? You come in and they sit you down and they, they talk to you about, you know, you're sat in the press conference bit where the all goes all around you. And I'm thinking, I'm, I'm sitting there, you know, unnerved and unmoved by all that because I've been there, done it, bought the t-shirt in terms of being in football environments and being in stadiums and being around it all. So it doesn't have that same wow factor to me, right? But I'm sitting there thinking there's all these little subtle things that are done from a very early age to say this is why you should be with us and this is why we have the right club and, and, and all of that sort of stuff. And I think for me, that means that there would definitely be a much bigger factor for me to play in. Is it the right environment? Is it the right coaching? Are they going to have the right support networks around them? And is the whole override, like, are we looking after the individual and the human being in all of this, right? And I think sometimes in football, I don't think intentionally, but some clubs do that better than others, right? And I think, you know, the, the fact that you guys are involved with certain clubs at the moment probably tells me that the clubs you're involved with at the moment are, have got that on their radar nice and early with the support 
to support the the guys that are in the academies, which I think is great. Um, and again, it comes back to a bit of what I was saying earlier that I think it's always important for any individual that's playing sport or trying to you know push them to self to be the best they can be in in these particular areas to choose the right environment for yourself as well and not be scared to step away from an environment that's not the right environment for you too because it could be that 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 a kid that's not thriving at one club might immediately go and thrive at another club or in a different environment as well and especially i think at those younger ages 14 15 16 17 18 years old there's so many different factors that come into sort of nurturing someone to give their best and be able to give their best. And you can't always put your finger on why it is certain players thrive at certain teams or under certain coaching styles or under certain coaches. But the more awareness you can have of that as a player, and that's not me saying be difficult and chuck the toys out the pram if you get a coach you don't like, because you know, we've all I've already spoke to you about, you know, resilience and sticking with it sometimes and being being your own person within that. But you do need to make sure you're as best you can putting yourself in and around a club support network coaching style all of that sort of stuff that's going to suit you as a, as an individual as well as a, a football player i think yeah totally agree and really interesting conversation tony i like the angle that you came in at as well so i appreciate that and i'm hopefully there's uh, other academy dads or maybe soon to be or have been academy dads out there that find that useful as well. Just moving on, looking to wrap up towards our last couple of questions, we want to touch on your role as a coach. You're, you know, you're a man that wears many hats and a, a coach is one of those. So how have you used your experience as a, a player, director and as a parent in your role as a coach? Um, so I'm I'm involved with a, with a local community club here in Haddington uh, in East Lothian and, and uh, I've been coaching now five or six years um, and part of, part of that I've been doing some of my badges and stuff so that's been just an interesting pathway for me you know through getting into coaching with the, the, the kids so you go on the SYFA pathways in terms of the coaching coach, courses and stuff and it's always been an area that interested me more broadly but um, I think the really interesting bit for me is that you you know you you pick up different things from different managers and different coaches you've had over the years and stuff as well. It's very rarely I very rarely find myself struggling for a drill or struggling for something to do with the players because I can always just tap into all right. I'm trying to work on this and then I'm like oh yeah I remember when we used to do this at training and that helped us work on that. So I'll just do that with these guys and I think the the I get a lot from that because there's loads of stuff that I'm taking and going. Crikey, that was a, that was, I've not done this since I was a professional footballer and I'm sitting here doing it with like seven, eight, nine year old kids and they're getting it and doing it and you take all the joys that you get out of those moments where it just clicks and you see them doing something well and all of that sort of stuff. So loads of different stuff from that. Again, I think this sort of, you, you know, kind of goes alongside the point I was making earlier about the transferable skills, but loads of different styles of managers and styles of man management and styles of coaches that I worked under has allowed me, I think, to be able to take that into my own coaching and recognising that, you know, some kids respond to carrot, some kids respond to stick, some kids respond to a bit of both. But also there's just a ways and means of, you know, I always, I always find, found that with my coaching stuff and in what I do in my day job, that communication is just a really big key part of that. So one of the things I've... I think I've managed well so far, but we'll we'll see as it continues along. We're only 10 year old at the moment, as I've got a really good communication with the parents as well. And if we're making decisions about where 
positions that players might be playing in or teams that levels they might be playing at because there's different levels within the community levels at my, my group as well I'm always really the first to be on the front foot and communicate with parents and communicate with the players as to why why we're doing that and why we might be making a decision that they don't necessarily agree with or see because I remember what that experience would feel like as a player and how it always felt better if you knew why if you know for if, so if there was a reason you weren't playing or you'd been told to play in the reserves or you'd been dropped down a level or whatever it was it was always a lot you know you still didn't necessarily agree with it or like the decision or whatever but it was much better to be told why and talk through some of the reasoning and then be able to maybe ask well what can I do to improve and, and do all of that stuff so I try and take a, a mix of all that um, into how I go about my coaching style and stuff as well as well with the kids and it's and I, I guess kind of full circle, you know, doing doing the coaching stuff now. Um, it's just kind of you know talked about getting my mojo back, but it's made me kind of fall in love with football and the game a bit again as well. Just watching young kids, you know, just picking up that wee skill, or you know, you do a wee thing in training, they actually go and actually do it in a game, and it comes off or whatever, and things like that. Just all those little moments that you get that you guys will witness, you know, because obviously you're supporting guys around that academy age happening all the time as well. Um, the grassroots, you know, I, I think I, I genuinely have been really impressed with grassroots football in Scotland today. And I think it's come on, you know, I, I talk about it like I'm an ancient dinosaur. I only came through like 20 odd years ago, right? It wasn't that long ago that I was playing. But the difference in that grassroots level and just in terms of everything, like the surfaces they're playing on, the community club element to it and most and most most bits of Scotland, they, they like I, I I, I'm reg I sound like an old man when I'm saying, but I'm regularly telling my young kids they didn't know how lucky they are to have an amazing 4G facility in Haddington that they get to play and train on all the time. We literally used to play on the concrete bit of road outside my house mm. and with cones out and had to move every time there was cars coming and things like that, you know, when I you know, when I was learning to play and stuff. So I, I think some of the stuff that we've got in place around early let, getting them letting them play early they getting coached from a, a young age there's so many positives about that that i think is partly starting to play out and we're seeing it transfer into where standing of the overall scottish game is at the moment like where we are in the coefficient in europe where the national team is in the world rankings how all those levels and it's been a bit of a journey in scottish football for a long time has been seen as being quite far behind a lot of other nations with this but I actually think we're, we're starting to bridge that gap certainly with nations that are of a similar size and have similar budgets around their football and stuff I, I think Scottish football's in, in, in great shape and I think the grassroots game in particular yeah just everything I've been really I mean all the coaches are volunteers I go and, we go and play clubs all around Edinburgh and East Lothian I've not I'm yet to have a ne negative experience with that in terms of how the other coaches are how the other players are what I'm seeing in terms of how all the teams are rolling out for the goalie to the defenders and playing for the back and stuff. There's nobody just hoofing up the park and chasing and trying to score goals and stuff. Mm. It's a massive shift from even where we were sort of 20, 25 years ago. So, yeah, I think there's a lot to be positive in the grassroots game. And I think it's knocked quite heavily in the press or in you know general yeah. circles and stuff. And I think it's in a lot better shape than people even really realise. No, amazing. It's something I don't have much knowledge on the grassroots, but it's good to hear that it's in safe hands. And in terms of it's, it's clear to hear everything you've picked up on throughout all your various roles. And it's great that you're enjoying your coaching. I'm, I'm sure the boys are, are, are enjoying working under you as well. And, and just lastly, Graham, you've dropped a lot of 
of advice, but if we were to have some sort of closing pieces of advice that you would like to give any young players or academy players, then what would that be? Yeah, I did have a think about this one um, because I kind of knew you were going to ask me something along these lines. Um, I think there's a few few elements to it. One is just, you know, going back to my always watching bit, just always give your best, always recognise that at somewhere along the lines, if you're if you're continually trying, continually working hard, continually looking to improve yourself, someone will notice, even when you think they aren't noticing. So always give of your best and always be aware that, you know, someone can always be watching. I think there's an element of uh, don't be too hard on yourself as well. Like I, I mentioned how, you know, we can all get a bit down if we've had a bad game or we've made mistakes, but especially at a young age, there's almost an expectation from my, like, you kind of get a free reign of it when you're a young player. Managers and coaches almost expect you to make mistakes, right? So, you know, accept that you are going to make some mistakes. Absolutely analyse why you maybe made those mistakes and how you could improve afterwards, but don't dwell on it. Move on, get to the next day and work on the things, you know, we touched, we talked earlier, Tony, about the controllables and the things that you can control yourself, work on the things that you can control and make better. And then my final bit would just be, you know, and I know this this is this is a big thing for you guys as well, but success means different things to different people. And, you know, have a real think about what, what does success mean for you? And I'm speaking to all, you know, I'm sure there's going to be a few different individuals that will have different things of what they think success means to them that will be watching this. And it's okay for success to mean what I defined as success, which has been a journeyman footballer for 12 or 13 years and having all of those experiences that I've touched upon with you guys throughout the chat tonight. Um, but it's also okay for you to deem success as being right at the top and you're going to push yourself and do everything you can to be that as well. Because we're, we're all different and we're all different individuals. And yeah, I think that would be about it. Amazing, mate. Uh, someone's always watching, make mistakes, but don't dwell on them and success means different things or yeah three things that I think kind of relate really well to everything that we try and speak about on the podcast Tony I don't know if you have any closing thoughts mate no I think just again really good words of advice have got been put across by another amazing guest on on the show I think each episode of this series we've had a real privilege in, in the guests that we've got on and I think this has been another another top one that just seems to keep adding stats and thank you for joining us Graham. Appreciate it Tony, thank you. Just for coming on Graham. Well that was another great episode Tony, I mean Graham gave us so many knowledge bombs and so many insights into the career of a professional footballer, there's so many places to start but I think I'll go for the, the way he talked about the system now versus the system that he grew up in playing and yeah the you know the the difference in organization i think was a thing that was coming out in terms of now kids are kind of locked in early doors in their career maybe at like 10 whereas for him he was able to float around teams between the ages of like 12 to, to 16 and you know mentioned playing with different academies under different coaches and the pros and cons that that sort of brought about compared to the current setup yeah, I think it's so interesting. Like you said, it was it was such a, a good episode that I think I found myself uh, multiple times there, almost like reflect verbally reflecting and having that conversation around some of the yeah some of the knowledge and some of the insights that he was sharing with us there. I think it is 
such an interesting debate around, you know, should a player join an academy and get that elite style coaching and, and get that, um, yeah, real like develop like support with developing themselves as an athlete at such a young age, or should they be allowed to just perhaps still continue enjoying the sport and develop the other soft skills that I mentioned, such as, you know, being able to communicate better, being able to adapt to different teams, to different management styles. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's a real back and forth and there's pros and cons to both sides. So, yeah, really interesting insight. And I think, obviously, he then went on to speak about how that helped him. He, he believed that that possibly helped him develop that resilience that he needed later on in his career. Yeah, I mean, he spoke about the different managers, one of them doesn't like your face, then the next one what's you in, different styles of play and how you just have to adapt and that's something that young players listening probably have to realise quickly that you are going to have to do that. But one thing that did come out was the importance of being passionate about the game and enjoying the game, so that's clearly something that he was, he was quite big on. The, the next point's probably to do with the, the journeyman like tag that he kind of found himself having and you know, I wanted to ask, like, do you see it as a good thing or a bad thing? Because I do think in today's kind of climate, it has negative connotations. And maybe it's someone who's, like, not that good and they didn't make it. But I think Graham redefined what making it is amazingly. And it's someone who has made it and is now in a different career. So I thought that was just really interesting. Yeah, definitely. It's really, yeah, really interesting. I think it's nice, again, that we're... We've had a guest come on to the show that isn't still making it. They've made it. They've done it. And now they're reflecting back and saying, you know, this is how I view it. And obviously he views it in a very positive light. He said multiple times that he wouldn't change a thing that happened. And, uh, you know, sharing the story of, of course, being part of that Rafe Rovers team that was traveling around Europe. And although he wasn't getting the game time, he still has got no regrets there and still looks back on it with fond memories. Um, so, again, that just changes people's perspectives on, you know, a lot of players, I think, would think, oh, but he didn't get onto the pitch. So how can that be a positive experience? Well, actually, when you when you see how he reflects on it and how he discusses it, and also how much of a privilege, especially back then, being selected as one of the 18 players from that whole club that got to go and experience that journey. And then, you know, probably one of the 1% of people in the world that get to go and experience a, a life or a, a lifestyle that's like that for however long is, is incredible. Yeah. Totally agree. And I think maybe the most interesting debate of the full episode for me was when we discussed the pre-academy. And it's something that I didn't have an answer for, but Graham was certainly very passionate about it. His son, of course, has been in and out of an SPL pre-academy. And he was unsure about whether this was right for him because his son's only 10 years old. He's starting to not enjoy it. He doesn't want to go to training and stuff like that anymore. He would rather play with the local team. And sort of Graham's like, yeah, well, I think he should play with a local team and and be the be the main man and score goals and enjoy it. And he spoke about, you know, if he's a firm believer in if the kids are or the kid is good enough, then he will make it as a successful footballer at some point. So interesting debate there around, you know, you're going to have to face pressure in an academy set up, but when is the right age for it? So I loved that. Yeah, 100%. And of course, I think he's perhaps thinking more of your 10 to 12-year-olds. But it was interesting that when then sort of following that conversation, I asked him around, you know, well, would he feel more comfortable with his with uh, his son being part of a club that had a young player 
wellbeing academy um support system in place and he said that it would completely sort of change his willingness to let his son um join because he he, he knows they're going to be getting that other sort of life skill development they're going to be getting that support that they need in order to help handle the pressure better and still feel confident um and deal with perhaps setbacks such as injuries and in, in a much more supportive and better way it was it was really interesting of course we're still not talking about 10 year olds getting that um but perhaps you know when you're looking at the 15 16 and onwards it's yeah it's, it's interesting to see and obviously nice to hear from us that someone who's been through the you know youth pro youth to actually professional footballer um experience and journey really values what we're what we're doing and, and the support that players need yeah and and in the last and main point someone is always watching i absolutely love that and it's the one thing that i took from my first conversation with graham and i think you could reference back to that piece of advice for every answer to every question that that he, that he gave so of course that's why we've titled the episode someone is always watching <laughs> yeah brilliant fantastic advice and as i said it's it's a real good way of reminding people that actually you know just keep taking on keep working towards your goals because people will be noticing you uh, so yeah fantastic piece of advice and something that i'll definitely be using in the future myself